One Hope Church. Glad each and every one of you are here today. Um, we are continuing our study in the book of Acts. This morning we're in uh, chapter 18. And also, um, it's you know, Palm Sunday, celebrated uh, by many people around, around the world. And so we'll look at this for a few moments at, um, that in John chapter 12. We'll try to tie that in uh, this morning. But let's go ahead um, and go to the Lord in prayer and um, ask him to bless our time together as we look into his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you this morning. We thank you for your goodness to us, God. We thank you for your, your greatness. Um, Lord, you are um, everything to us. Uh, we pray that that would actually be true, not just in words that we say, but in reality, God, that you have loved us uh, first and we have responded to your love uh, with love back to you. And so we thank you that your full love for us was displayed at the cross as you sent Jesus for us and Lord, whenever we are prone um, to doubt, uh, God, we can look to the, to the cross and, and be reminded just very powerfully that you indeed have loved us and do love us. Help us to be faithful, uh, to follow you in all things. And Jesus, we praise you and worship you this morning. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 18. Last week we saw um, Paul in uh, the city of Athens, and he's kind of there, you know, alone, but the Lord works. He gives this very powerful uh, message. And then in chapter 18, verse 1, we read, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Um, So we'll stop there just for a a moment just to get, you know, know, understand what's going on there in in that scene. As Paul leaves Athens, he goes to Corinth. Um, we've studied the books of First and Second Corinthians, uh, you know, together, and so um, we have an idea of of Paul's ministry there in a very difficult, you know, place. Uh, but there, he meets a couple of people. He meets Aquila and Aquila's wife Priscilla, and they, because they're of the same trade, they stay together and they work with together. There's, you know, times in Paul's ministry where, you know, he's supported by other churches, and and that's all that he does. Um, as we'll see in here a little bit, all he does is preach. There's other times where he's what we call bivocational and that he has his ministry, but he also has, you know, to provide food for himself and for others. And so he does, you know, work. And here he's called a tent maker. Now, what that means exactly, uh, we're not 100% sure. It could be like tents in the marketplace as, you know, they would make these fabric things, you know, for people to have their, sell their goods um, in the marketplaces. It could also be, Having to do with with uh, sails, uh, you know, for ships, um, same s- sort of fabric uh, used for that. But in any case, um, he's working, you know, with them, and you know, Aquila and Priscilla have had their lives turned upside down. You know, they're Jewish people, um, they're followers of Jesus, 
they live, you know, they lived in Rome. They had set up, you know, shop there. So, you know, they have their business there. They have everything there. And then all of that is crushed. You've got to go. You know, they have to leave their house. They have to leave their business. They have to leave everything and start over in a new place. And so they, they choose Corinth because it's a city of, of commerce. Um, it's a place where they believe they can make a go of it, you know, again. But, you know, you have to imagine that they've taken a, a serious economic hit, you know, in their lives. Because when the Jews get expelled, people aren't like, hey, let me give you a bunch of money for your house. You know, it's like, no, you ain't getting anything for that. Because they know you got to go and they can just take it, you know. So uh, it's a true start over sort of situation for them. And then, uh, so they worked together in the synagogue in Corinth, trying to persuade, persuade Jews and Greeks, so the Jewish people who, you know, kind of by, by birth were part of this, um, you know, and going to the synagogue, their culture, their tradition. And then with the Greeks, probably those have become converts to Judaism. Uh, they're reasoning with them in the synagogue every Saturday, um, as that would be the normal day of the week they would get together, you know, to worship. So when Silas and Timothy, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ uh, was Jesus. And so we see here, now that others are here and other people can do, you know, some of this bivocational work as well, Paul, it seems like, just takes a complete focus now toward preaching and toward sharing Jesus with people. uh, And that's what he's about. That's what he's doing. And it says in verse 6, And when they opposed and reviled them, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Let's stop there in verse 8, because I want to get that scene, because it's such a cool scene. So, you know, he's in this argument. People are not, you know, responding, you know, to follow Jesus, how he's expecting them, you know, and hopeful that they will respond. And so then he says, you know, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now I'll go to the Gentiles. And he goes to this Gentile, you know, he's working with the Gentiles. But the Gentile that he's staying with, his house is where? Right next to the door to the synagogue. So he's still in, you know, it's important that we understand that as Paul says this, it's it's really in some ways a provocation. Um, It's a it's a strong statement that he makes, but he 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 makes it in hopes in the hope that they'll still respond even to the provocation to consider Jesus again and what they are really Doing and is Jesus really the Messiah? He he doesn't want to do away with his own people. I mean, and you, if you read the book of, of Romans, uh, particularly in Romans nine through eleven, I mean that's where you know Paul says that if he could be damned, that his countrymen would be saved, like his fellow Jewish people, like he would make the trade. I mean, it's pretty intense. And so in this, as he's you know provoking them, and even in that section, he talks about how. The Gentiles coming to faith would provoke the, the Jewish people, hopefully in a way that they would come to the Lord. And so that's part of his motivation 
I believe, in, in doing this. And we have to balance the words that he speaks with the actions that he takes. If he was completely done away with these people, he wouldn't go in and stay in a house right next to the synagogue. And what's the result of all this? We see Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, the one in charge, becomes a follower of Jesus with all of his house. So you're not, you're not going to find Paul going in here like, hey, well, I gave you a chance, you didn't take it, and now that you want to come to the Lord, it's too late. Like, you don't see that at all here. You know, Paul is going to welcome that brother with open arms and, um, and embrace him. And it says, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And so now you're going to have in Corinth, Jew and Gentile, you have this combination in the church there. Uh, And what do they do? It says they believed and they were baptized. And this is the pattern that we see um, in the book of Acts. You know, when people become followers of Jesus, they make that public profession of faith, part of building them on the rock of Jesus, building their lives you know, on him and, and making that publicly known to all that they were going one way and now they're going a different way. You know, and so that, that public profession is important. And it says, verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And so this is where, you know, Paul stays a little bit longer in this place than in some places. You know, some places he's there for a few weeks, and in some places, you know, he stays for significant periods of time. And in Corinth, he stays here for a year and a half. And then it says in verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. And this would obviously be the Jewish people who were not believing. In Jesus, um, And so they said, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if this was a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. Again, remember they're in occupied Roman territory. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now think about being Sosthenes. You know, he comes in, he takes over, you know, the synagogue after Crispus has become a follower of Jesus and, you know, has left that role. You know, I mean, again, remember for Crispus, this is a huge shift in life because he goes from... You know, everything in his life is wrapped up around, you know, the synagogue, his role there, his position there. I mean, this is how um, his family is provided for, like everything in his life revolves around this. And we come, when he becomes a follower of Jesus, that is no longer there. You know, and, and that's an interesting thing that, that, that we find in people's, people's lives that for some people, it's just... You know, they, they grow up in kind of a, a, a culture where it's not, it doesn't cost very much to follow Jesus. You know, it's just kind of like, well, I can believe in Jesus. And really, yet yeah, things change internally and things turn, change in terms of motivations and priorities and, you know, how, you know, they treat their neighbor, how they do their business and, and things like that. And those are obviously big, significant changes. But for some people, when they come to know Jesus, it means like, 
how they made their livelihood before is no longer an option. They have to do something completely different than what they've done all their lives. And this is a radical shift that Crispus has to take. And now imagine this guy coming in. Sosley's like, well, I got the job now. And then things happen and people are kind of, you know, getting him fired up. And, hey, we got to go, you know, we're going to go to the Roman government together. And we're going to put a stop to Paul and, you know, everything that he's done. And then, you know, he finds himself now beaten for this because things have not played out according to the plan. But you know what's really cool? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, you have Paul writing with his dear brother, Sosthenes. Most likely this very same dude. You know, can you imagine after going through this and he has this reevaluation of his life and what he believes and what's important and why he's doing what he's doing. And it seems like this man also comes to know the Lord. And so you had the rule of the synagogue when Paul comes onto the scene, comes to know the Lord, and then his successor comes to know the Lord. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And so you imagine that would be a powerful testimony um, in the city of Corinth. And then verse 18, it says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. As said, Centuria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, and when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Now again, remember, Ephesus is in that area of what, the, what is called in the scriptures, you know, Asia. Um, it's a province in the Roman Empire where er, at the beginning of this missionary journey, because we're on the second missionary journey of Paul, the beginning of it, this is where our, he wants to go into Asia, but um, he has the, the, the Lord stops him. He has a vision from the Macedonian man that says, come over here and help us. And so he's kept from going in at this time. But on the end of the, end of the journey, he does make it, on his, you know, as he's going back towards Jerusalem, he does make it into Asia. So again, it wasn't that the Lord didn't want those people to be reached. It wasn't that the Lord didn't want Paul to go and be part of reaching them. It was an issue of timing and, and who was ready when. You know, for the message. And at this point in time, we see some thirst and some hunger from the people in Ephesus as the people in the synagogue are saying to him, Hey, please stay. And he's saying, You know, I can't stay now. And it has to do with his, it, it still goes back to his testimony to the Jews. It has to do with the vow that he took. And he's trying to get back, you know, for particular events back in Jerusalem and a set time. And he knows that he can't, you know, linger. He can't just stay. In Ephesus. And so he says, if it's, I will return to you if God wills. I mean, you know, he has a desire to go back to them. He's not sure exactly what the Lord's plan is fully. But we know that God is not done with, because we have the rest of the book of Acts. We know that God's not done with Paul's work in Ephesus. But he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. And he, it says that um, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. 
And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Pergia, strengthening all the disciples. Okay, so that takes Paul on his journey. But remember, he's left Priscilla and Aquila um, in Ephesus. And so now we're going to get a little bit more about them as the chapter ends. In verse 24, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to go across to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Okay. Um, Let's look at this a minute because I think there's some things in here that are really important for us to understand. And so we have this, you know, this Jewish man, but he grew up in Alexandria. Alexandria was in Egypt. Um, It was world renowned as a place of of learning. Um, They were known for a library that they had there that at this time would have rivaled, you know, anything else in the world. Um, You know, they were an intelligent, you know, people and they sought learning, they sought understanding. And so, you know, Apollos um, had grown up in this environment. And you can see, you know, he's a Jewish man, but his name is Apollos. You know, his family obviously is trying to blend in and meld, you know, with the, with the culture that they're in, as opposed to just saying, well, we're going to keep, you know, separate and, and distant. And so he has this exposure to Hebrew thought, but he also has this exposure to, um, you know, lots of other information, you know, in the world. And, and he, he learns how to, you know, make a, a, an argument or how to make a case for something. It says here that he's an eloquent, you know, speaker. He's a communicator. Um, at a, he's a very high-level communicator. Um, and, and what I mean by that is he's able to take, you know, concepts and to instruct others in those concepts in a way that they can, you know, understand it and will be prone to agree with it because he's going to lay out things in a, in, a, in a good way. And he begins speaking boldly in the synagogue, and it says here, that he spoke accurately concerning the things of Jesus. He is a follower of Jesus, but his knowledge is limited because it says that he only knew about the baptism of John. Now, the baptism of John was a, a baptism of preparation. When John the Baptist, who we call John the Baptist because he was the one baptizing people in preparation for Jesus' coming, he was baptizing them um, in a way to uh, prepare them for Jesus, that they were acknowledging we've been sinful, we've been, we've been wrong, and we, and we need to come back you know, to God. It was a baptism of repentance. Um, it, was a, it was a preparation you know, sort of thing. But then once Jesus has his ministry, and after his death and resurrection on the, on the cross, things change. And then Jesus says to his disciples, you know, go into all all the world, make disciples of all the people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
So he gives them this new way that he wants them to do this baptism. You know, go into other words, make disciples. So that's, you know, the beginning of discipleship. Because be disciple means to become like one, right? So the whole goal is to make people who are like Jesus. Well, what's the first step in that? First step is to believe in Jesus, right? You have to believe in him in order to be fashioned and shaped to become like him. You know, it's pretty, you know, easy to understand. There has to be some, some faith there in who Jesus is. So, you know, make these disciples, and part of the process of making the disciple is then baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We see what Paul did back here um, in Corinth, or what happened to people. Now, Paul actually himself did very little of the actual baptizing, but hearing Paul, they believed and they were baptized. So we, we have this progression. So there's, as part of becoming a disciple, as part of growing and maturing a disciple, step one is believe, usually step two is be baptized, and then there's the continuing, you know, walking with Jesus. Um, so step one in the belief is this, you know, inward thing between the person and, and God of, you know, humility of, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved, and I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. You know, it's a faith in, in Jesus, and that's a private thing, that's something that only can, that transaction can only happen between God and the individual. And then there's the public being baptized that tells the world, I'm identified in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm identified with him. Now my life is to be built on him and to revolve you know, around him in every way. You know, building on the, the person and teaching of Jesus Christ from that point forward. This is what we see throughout the New, New Testament. But because Apollos um, hadn't been taught about those things, he could only speak about what he knew. So, you know, he's talking about John's baptism, he's talking about Jesus, but he can only talk about what he knows because, you know, and that's true for all of us, right? You can only teach someone else what you've been taught and what you understand and believe to be true. We all reach a limitation at that point where, you know, we, we are incapable of teaching somebody else a truth that we don't already have for ourselves. So this is where Apollos is. Like, he's doing the best he can with what he has, and he's doing it very well. But Priscilla and Aquila, hearing him and seeing the, all the potential that's in him, they take him aside, and it says they explain the way of God more accurately. And this is a beautiful thing. And then, you know, he obviously accepts this because, you know, it says he wished to cross to Achaia. He wants to do more work in another place. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome them. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted you know, is the Jews, is the unbelieving Jews in public, showing from the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. But now they explained it to him in a more accurate way. It's also pretty cool to see here, you know, we see that Paul first meets um, Aquila, and through Aquila, you know, Aquila's wife, Priscilla, and then you see Priscilla's name come forward more uh, in the front, 
You see, she, she knows the scriptures really well here, too. And it, we, again, we just have to refute this idea that, you know, that at this point in history, women aren't educated and knowledgeable and, you know, such things. Uh, you know, we just kind of have to turn some of the switches off that we've been wrongly taught in the past and um, see what the scripture says and, and does here. Um, but we see that it's just in a, in, a, in a very powerful and loving way, they shared the way of God with him more accurately. Now, there's lots of people in the world who need this, and I would venture to say that all of us at some point have needed this, even as followers of Jesus. You know, you're following Jesus, and you have a certain idea, and yet, and yet, then somebody comes along and says, "Hey, you know, have you have you considered this?" And you know, hopefully, uses the scriptures to say, "Hey, there, there's a different way to think about this, and there's a way that's more accurate according to the way of God." Now, what's the point of this? The point of this is not to be right for the sake of being right. The sake for the the purpose of this is to follow God as closely as we can for His glory. And to be a better help to others. Because Apollos has this responsibility that if he's going to be teaching, he needs to do so with as great accuracy as, as possible. Because others are going to take what he says as truth. So he's got a responsibility to respond to the truth. What's really cool here is that we don't see anything in here about Apollos getting all defensive we don't seem to get all, all defensive and say, well, you know, no, this is what I understand to be true. And, you know, I'm going to hold on to it. When he's clearly shown the way of God more accurately, he has the character to accept it. He's humble. He's humble. And he receives it. And then he goes and uses it in his ministry. And that's a powerful thing. That's a powerful thing. Because he had to be willing to humble himself and to be a learner. I think one of the great things about Apollos, that you can see him being a lifelong learner as a follower of God. Now, I think you can also be, be certain that if they told him things that were not accurate according to the way of God, you know, he... He wasn't just going to accept anything anybody told him. You know, just because somebody come and told him, hey, this is, you know, this is better. You know, you know he's, he's got a responsibility to discern and to, and to seek out and go, is, is what they're telling me actually more accurate and more truthful than what I've believed up until this point? Or my understanding has been up until this point. But he's a, he's a learner. In his life, he's willing to hear, hey, how you've been doing, doing that or how you've been viewing that isn't complete. Here's more for you. And he takes it and he runs with it. And that's a really beautiful thing. And I would say that it's, uh, it's an uncommon thing, especially in our world today. Because, you know, especially... For a grown, you know, at this point, you know, he's a grown person. And for grown people, a lot of times, don't like to be taught something new. Well, this is how I've done it. This is what I've known to be true. This is what's kind of worked for me. And I'm going to go with it. But it takes a lot. 
But this is what we see in, in this whole chapter. You really have this theme, you know, with, with Crispus, ultimately with Sosthenes, and then with Apollos of, of these men who are in positions of authority, these men who are in positions of teaching others, and then coming under to understand, hey, I haven't had the full picture here. I've got to change and then give this fuller picture to other people. That's a theme of Acts chapter 18, is grown people being humble enough to say, I don't fully have this. I don't fully have this. And no matter what age you are, one of the best things you can do is to have a conversation with yourself that says, I, I am confident and I know these things to be true about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about the, about the church, about life. I know these things to be true according to the word of God and I am certain of them. I also understand that I don't know everything. Can everybody just say to themselves, I don't know everything. Say in your own mind, I do not know everything. I am still a learner. I am still a learner. But so many times, and we see it, it's so common in our culture, and it's especially common in settings where you have learning, and you have a university, and you have these sort of things, especially, you know, everybody who's, you know, 18 to 25 wants to think they know everything. Because you've been in classes and you've gotten some education. But do you understand whatever subject you've studied, you've actually received very, very little percentage of what all there is to know about that. You know, you you take a biology class, you think you understand biology. You don't understand biology. You took a class. And you understand a lot more at the end of that class than you did at the beginning of the class. That's awesome. You know how much you know after biology 101 of what you know about biology? Like a tiny, tiny percent of all there is to know about biology. I don't know hardly anything about biology. There's other subjects I know a little bit more about. But whatever it is that you think you know about a lot of stuff, you actually probably don't know very much about that. There's so much more to learn. But it's the, but the, the what I'm getting at here is the pride that says, I know a lot. I know a lot about a lot. And a lot of times that comes out of a, of a place of you know, wanting to be perceived. We want to be perceived that, hey, we know what we're talking about. But what we need to be perceived of as we know Jesus and we want to talk about him. And we're humble in our world, even in that. That in, even as we talk about that, how we talk about does it convey I think I'm better than you. But how we talk about that is without Jesus, I'm terrified to think about who I would be. You know, that without Jesus, I'm nothing. It reminded me when we talked, when we read through the Tozer book um, at the advance, and one of the things out there he talks about is like, you know, you get offended, you get all upset when somebody treats you like nothing. But just the other day when your prayers, weren't you just telling God you were nothing? You know, where's your consistency, man? 
is what Tozer says, you know, not exactly like that, but that's basically what he says. Where's your, where's your consistency? You're just telling God, Lord, I'm nothing, you know, before you. I'm just your servant. You can do anything you want with me in, in my life. And at the slightest offense or the slightest doubt that somebody else puts in, you know, in the world, we get all offended. We get our feelings all hurt. Well, we've got to be consistent. Our, either our identity and our purpose and our value and everything is in Christ or it's not. Your value comes from God or it doesn't. You know, and we need to learn to be consistent. I need to learn to be more consistent with that. Because I can be, you know, I feel bad when I'm, when I'm slighted. And something something across to, comes across to me as negative. But is my value in Jesus or isn't it? Is my confidence, my worth, all, everything that I have, is it in the Lord or is it not? But what we see here in Acts chapter 18 throughout is people who are humble before God and they're willing to, to change and they're willing to be lifelong learners and they're willing to say, hey, there's a better way. And that shift, it happens for, at different points. You know, at some point, Apollos, too, had to make that huge shift from, I'm waiting for the Messiah, to Jesus is the Messiah. I'm waiting for the King, to Jesus is the King. Crispus had to make the shift from, Jesus isn't the King, to Jesus is the King. Sosthenes had to make the shift from, Jesus is the, isn't the king, and I'm going to just try to destroy Paul and anybody else who says that he is the king, to being humbled and saying Jesus is the king. And then even after Apollos had said Jesus is the king, he has to say, and I didn't fully understand it all. Thanks for explaining it to me more clearly. And then taking that and running with it. Man, it's a beautiful chapter. Because again, we see that humility throughout and the thing about each of these is ultimately they come to the point in the realization that they understand that it's all about Jesus and for him. And if we can think about that, back to John chapter 12 and the triumphal entry of Jesus. In John chapter 12, verse 12, it says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. But his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had, they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We'll stop there, but that triumphal entry has to do with Jesus being the Messiah, the King, the promised one you know, of Israel. And there's this, in this, this powerful picture that they don't understand as they see it, but they're going to. These prophecies in the Old Testament being fulfilled. And I also want us to notice the words of Jesus there where he requires us to have that humility that we have to lay down our lives and put ourselves in the place of, of saying, you know, Jesus, this is about you. My life is about you. It's for your glory. It's for your honor. It's for your purposes. And it's not about me. It's not about me. And if that's our, our understanding and our purpose, you know, we're, we want to glorify God and we want to be lifelong learners as we glorify God because we want to continuously seek how do we do that better? How do we do that more fully? How do we continue to push forward in Jesus? And what Apollos is doing there in Acts chapter 18 that we see that's so beautiful at the end of it is that he is powerfully showing by the scriptures that the Christ, that's the, the promised Messiah, King to come, was Jesus, that he actually already did come. You know, he's going to return again, but he, he, he actually, the, that pro, those prophecies about him and his coming were fulfilled in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, and that means it's really, he's the anointed one. He is the king. And so as we take the bread and cup this morning, we say, you know, we have a true king. But you know what's so awesome and, and amazing and beautiful about this? is that Jesus, our King, loved us enough to die for us. And again, that should take away all that self-doubt, self-doubt about one's personal value. All of those things, you're made in the image of God. And not only that, that even after you rebelled against Him, as humanity rebelled against Him, God in His love gives us Jesus and Jesus loves us so much that he dies for us. He goes to the cross for us. He suffers and pays for all of our sin. And yet, there are times in our lives where we we look at Jesus and we say, you're not enough to validate me. My worth has to be validated based on a score that I get on a test, based on the success of my business, based on the size of the church, based on whatever else it is that you draw value from. And we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, yeah, I know I need you, but I need you plus X, whatever your X is. I've got to be validated from some outside source that tells me I'm worthy. And won't take the fact that you're made in the image of God and that Jesus died on the cross for you or for me. We won't take it as enough. As enough. 
You know, and, and I'll be honest with you, when I come in this morning, you know, when the family invited yesterday, they said, you will probably come, they don't show up. And, and you know, there's always valid reasons, you know, but, but sometimes there's a smaller number in here than there should be. And when I see it and I'm kind of discouraged and I question my own value and I say, not good enough. Just being straight with you this morning. I look at it sometimes and I go, we aren't where we should be because I'm not good enough. Jesus reminds me this morning, the bread and the cup, it's not about me whether I'm good enough or not. It's not my value. My value isn't how many people are here on a Sunday. My value is that Jesus died for me. And whatever comes or goes in this life, there's one thing that stays consistent. And that is, that bread in that cup validates everything for us. That Jesus died for us and he rose again. Validates us. That we're loved. That we're worthy in the sight of God. And we take that bread and that cup, we say, thank you that my value has been validated by you and I need no other validation. And take the freedom that comes with that. And I preached that to myself this morning. Take the freedom that comes with that and then just try to live obedient to God and be okay with the outcome of all of that. Because there are some times where I'm honest, I say, you know, there's part of it where I just go, okay, not good enough. Yeah, well, what's not good enough? Not following Jesus more fully. Not striving to be as obedient as I can be, you know, each day. But Jesus is enough for us. He is enough for us. Have our value in that, and then the scripture teaches us and instructs us live in a way that we go to please him because he says, Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Those are hard words sometimes for us to hear this morning. But if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. The truth of the matter is, and this is what we harped on so much at the beginning of the year, if we went through the pursuit of God with Tozer, the truth of the matter is, Jesus tells us that we want to serve him, we have to follow him. And he'll be there. But the problem is so many times we want whatever our ex is more than we just want to be with Jesus. If our desire is to follow him, to serve him, to be where he is, 
we're going to be okay with the outcome of anything else. But that's the part that it's so hard to grab a hold of and so easy to let go of. So hard to, it's so hard to let go of, all, of the stuff and everything else and just say, okay, Jesus, you are enough. And it seems so easy to make the trade back the other way and say, Jesus, you're not enough anymore. I need X. So easy to make that trade back. So this morning, Father God, uh, we need your help. We need your hope. We need your strength. We need your reality to say that we refuse to be measured by other standards that aren't you, God. That we refuse to have our, our self-worth, our identity wrapped up and evaluated and judged by anything that's not you, God. As we look at that bread and cup and we testify that you have validated us, that you have loved us and you have done so for your own glory, we praise you and give you honor and say thank you because you loved us when we were worthless. You loved us when we were rebellious. You loved us when we were just full of sin and have not, want to have nothing to do with you. And in your grace and your mercy, your peace, sent redemption for us. So Lord, help us this morning not to believe the lies that this world tells us. Not to believe the lies that are preached in so many sermons. But we would see the way more excellent. And as Apollos did, that we would take it. We would have the humility to take it. To receive the instruction that comes from your word and to say, Yes, Lord. We'll follow you and we'll follow you your way. It doesn't have to be my way. It doesn't have to be what I was taught. It doesn't have to be the culture and tradition that I came from. Because your way, God, is the most excellent way, and that's what I want. That's what I want, and that's what I want to pass on to other people. And it's worth the sacrifice. It's even worth, when it happens, as we saw here in Acts 18, it's worth the humiliation of the world. It's worth being talked about and talked down to. But we know, Jesus, that you are worthy. So as we take that bread and that cup this morning, please help us, wherever each person is and where we are collectively, help us, God, we ask you. Help us to see things as you see them. Jesus, all glory to you and all praise to you this morning in your precious name.